Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today is Jim Pouliopoulos, best known as Pooley. Pooley started his career as an engineer at General Electric and GSI, now considers himself to be a recovering engineer. After being an engineer, Pooley was senior marketing manager at IBM for 12 years. And then for five years, Pooley had his own company where he was a growth coach helping entrepreneurs and executives enhance their mindset, their focus, and their results. Since then, Pooley's been a founding director of the professional sales program at Bentley University in Boston. Pooley also spent a number of years as a facilitator for force management. He holds a degree in electrical engineering from RPI, a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from WPI. I don't know why anyone would want one of those, Pooley. We'll talk about that. <laughs> and an MBA from Bentley. Pooley's recently written a book titled How to Be a Well-Being, Unofficial Rules to Live Every Day. It shares Pooley's insights on bringing happiness first approach to business, education, and life. In his three TED Talks, he explores similar concepts and the question of what drives inner motivation and professional success. If that isn't enough, Pooley's also a certified trainer for The Art of Brilliance, which is a UK-based firm that specializes in training and development to increase workplace well-being and personal productivity. Welcome, Pooley. How are you today? Thank you. Thank you, John. Man, oh man, that's a long list there you read. I, I, never, <laughs> I never tell everyone all of that, but thanks for that. It was a great introduction. <laughs> that's a long list, Pooley. And as far as the electrical engineering thing, I, I wound up getting an electrical engineering degree, so that's why I said I don't understand why anyone would want to do that. I didn't do it for very long, John, as you yeah. know. That's when I, I went into recovery pretty soon after graduating from WPI. <laughs> I realized that I was, you know, when I graduated, there's no way I'm going to be a really great engineer. So I have to find something else. And that's what drove me into sales. So yeah, same here. lucky same to get same. into it. Yeah. Yep. Same here. Same with me. So Pooley, you've written a book on well-being. You've performed, you know, several TED Talks on finding happiness in our daily lives. Yep. And you refer to yourself as a happiness engineer. So let's start with a general question. You know, what stops many people from being happy? So I think I think the main thing that stops people from being happy most of the time is um, a, a a gap between their expectations of what's happening around them and the reality of their current situation. So I'll give you a quick example. When when the pandemic first hit, right, and everyone thought, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, and then two months to flatten the curve, and six months to flatten the curve, and then you know, a year later, we're still wearing masks and running around wondering when it's going to end. The people that seemed to weather that the best were the folks that thought about it in terms of 
or can't control whether or not this pandemic is going to end. I have no control over that. But if I fixate on the fact that it's continuing and going on and on, I'm just going to drive myself into a negative space mentally, right? The folks that weathered it better were the ones that looked at it and said, well, I've got to adjust my work, uh, my approach to work. I've got to do it remotely, this and that. For a lot of people, you know, that extra time of not commuting resulted in uh, new hobbies, new, you know, time with family. A lot of people made decisions during uh, those two, three years when we were really, you know, kind of in the midst of it to change their career path because they 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 realized they had something else they wanted to do. That's the difference between people that, you know, kind of use what they have in front of them and control what they can control versus waiting for the outside world to change. And I think that is what causes a lot of people to to drift away from what makes them happy. And they just they worry too much about things outside their control. And, and yeah, I read one of your statements that I found very powerful, and maybe it's uh, what you just said speaks to that a little bit. You asked the question, you know, could you be happier if nothing around you changed? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, the short answer to that is yes. Most people don't realize that, though. Most people think things around them have to change for them to be happier. Um, but your happiness really is composed of just three, you know, when they measure, researchers can measure happiness. That's the analytical part that I like. That's the that's the happiness engineer part that I like. Is there's actual research that you can point to that says they've measured happiness and they've studied it. And the main thing that comes out of it is this thing called the happiness formula or happiness equation. Half of your happiness really is sort of embedded in your DNA. So what they've determined is you're, you're, you're genetically predisposed to a set, a set point in your happiness. It's kind of like buying a thermostat at a hardware store, right? It comes set at some temperature. But you can change that, right? You can change the thermostat. You can change your level of happiness. The, the, the other 50% is composed of 10% of it is external circumstances. The weather, pandemics, right? Everything going on outside of you has an effect on your happiness, but only about 10%. The other 40% is made up of things that you voluntarily do, where you voluntarily look, how much, um, you know, media and news do you consume? Um, what do you think about? What do you do? What do you focus on day in, day out? And that to me was sort of like this eye opener, which was if you just focus on things that are positive on a daily basis, you will be happier. I, I always tell my audiences when I speak and do these keynotes about happiness, I am here to make a million people happier. That's my mission in life, right? To make a million people happier. But I don't tell them I'm going to make them happy. All I want them to do is learn how to just be a little happier tomorrow than they were today. You know, you define what happy, you know, the final sort of happy point is for you. But you can be happier if you just do a few simple things every day in general life. And I think salespeople can also incorporate a lot of these, you know, skills and, and daily habits into their uh, operation. So it's really just a matter of what are you paying attention to and what are you thinking about and how are you treating other people? And that really leads to, you know, increases in happiness. If you just focus on a few simple things and it really is very simple and most people don't, don't think about it on a daily basis. Yeah. I read your formula. It's uh, happiness equals S that's the set point. I think you that's talked right. about plus yeah. C your circumstances and then that's the right. V uh, that's your viewpoint on things. Is v that is your v? viewpoint, your voluntary viewpoint. actions, and you know, so, and V is about 40, mm -hmm. 35 to forty percent of your overall level. So you can really boost your happiness by 20, 30, 40 percent 
in any given you know period of time by just doing some things slightly differently. Uh, so when I think about viewpoint, then Pooley, how do we minimize the effect of you know negative external events that happen around us yeah. and how we view those? Talk a little bit about how we should view those to make sure that it doesn't affect our happiness. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, that's the crux of it right there. Right. And so a big part of it for me, I'll give you an example, the weather, right. But the weather is something that people really get, you know, kind of tied up around a lot. Right. <laughs> so when you pick up your phone and you look at the weather app, people react to it in a couple of different ways. When I look at the phone and I turn on the weather app and I look at it and it says it's going to be a sunny day, 85 to 90 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. I say to myself, well, this is a good day to wear a T-shirt, pair of shorts and, you know, and, and enjoy, you know, sort of the, the nice weather. When I look at it and it tells me it's going to snow and it's going to be, you know, cold and freezing rain. I know I've got a dress for that. I also know I've probably got to give myself a little extra time if I'm commuting someplace in the morning, right? So, so it's a very practical tool. But some people look at the weather app the following way. They see the sunny day, the 85 degree, 90 degree sunny day being forecast for tomorrow. And they tell themselves, oh, it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow. I'm going to be happy. Mm -hmm. They look at the cold snowstorm day forecasted for tomorrow and they say, it's going to be cold. And I'm going to be miserable in yeah. that moment. They've already decided what their emotional state will be tomorrow, right? Yes. Because they've sort of pre-programmed their mind for that. And the weather app should just tell you what to wear, right? And, and what to do that day. It should not be, the weather app should not be a whether or not I'm going to be happy app. And I see a lot of people put a lot of uh, effort and stake into what that external circumstance of the weather will mean for their own happiness. Now, you can extend that to anything. Uh, as you know, we talked about the pandemic and COVID. Sure, that was, a, that was a, a very difficult time for a lot of people. But we all had stuff to be grateful for every day. We all, you know, I couldn't be doing the work that I do today without the pandemic. It, it, it normalized remote work and it normalized Zoom as a as a delivery mechanism for sales training and for keynotes and for workshops. So as difficult as it was, I look at it a little differently. I put a little positive lens on it and I say, you know what? It actually has allowed me to do way more and reach audiences around the world that I never would have touched before because it normalized this, this idea of working remotely. So yeah. um, that's the, that's the real subtle nuance in how do you look at how, you know, the things that happen externally, like what are we taking away from them? Yeah. Well, where does this fit in uh Pooley where you've run into these people, they're always unhappy because they live in the past and they have regrets about what happened in the past. And for some reason they can't live in the moment that they're in, they're just constantly living and kind of negative about the current situation because of what happened in the past. Yeah. So one of my TED Talks is about regret, and it's about a, a real deep personal regret that I had over uh, my relationship with my uncle Lazarus. And, uh, you know, to, to give you kind of a short version of it, I had visited him back in 1989 and spent this amazing week with him. He was an interesting guy, really interesting guy, just had done a lot. And uh, and I always felt that, and I visited him in Greece and I always felt, and I promised him I'd come back and visit him again. And then like 22 years passed and I never went back to Greece to visit him. I just never went back to Greece. I just never went on vacation, never took a trip there. 
And I really regretted it. And when I found out he had passed away at the ripe old age of 95, he had a great life. It hit me really hard. And I really started thinking about this idea of regret. And my takeaway from that, to your point, was I spent a lot of time after he passed away thinking about how much I regretted not staying in touch with him. But I took it a little step further and I said, you know what, this it's like a learning moment. It was a it was a huge epiphany for me, which was to say family and friends and uh, connections like that are important to me. And I can't let other ones like that kind of fade. I've, I've got to stay on top of this. I've got to I've got to spend time uh, reaching out to people I haven't talked to in a while, making sure that family stays you know, top of mind and important to me. I use that moment of regret as a real learning lesson, but unfortunately, a lot of people don't step back from those regrets of the past and use it to learn. Regret has always sort of been this um, early warning system that you're doing, that you did something against what you truly care about, against your value system, right? So by not, by not going to visit my uncle Lazarus, I basically didn't follow through on the verbal statement of family and friends are important to me. So from that moment forward, I started making a list of people that I had lost touch with that I wanted to reconnect with and doing sort of a regular outreach to them. And it completely changed you know, my life. And in some of these folks, I hadn't talked to in decades. And I just made sure that they knew how much I appreciated their friendship, their help, whatever it was. And I look back now and think that moment with Michael Lazarus was a huge learning uh, experience, but most people don't do that. Most people dwell on it. And sometimes because they're so fixated on the past like that, they don't, they don't learn a lesson and they make the same mistake again. Right. And they don't live in the present either because of that. And they don't live in the present. Or appreciate the present. Absolutely. So let's switch gears a little bit. I heard you speak about negativity bias. So can you explain what you mean by negativity bias and how that might affect us? Yeah. So negativity bias is, is, is human. It's, it's human nature. It's, it's actually built into, it's hardwired into us, which means we tend to look at external events with suspicion and with negativity. And we kind of interpret things uh, uh, negatively initially. And it's really sort of an evolutionary survival tool. So you know, when we were uh, humans evolving, uh, you know, being chased by predators, we started to assume that any animal we didn't know could potentially be a predator. So let's let's steer clear of that. Any berries or fruit on a tree that we don't know that we've we've never touched before that could be poisonous. Let's avoid it. Let's avoid it because it could be poisonous. Um, you know, that part of the jungle or that part of the cave, people go in and they don't come out. Let's avoid that. So. That became part of our operating DNA from an evolutionary point of view. It gave us the tools to evolve, frankly, right? But it's still there within us, and we're not being chased by saber-toothed tigers anymore. Mm -hmm. So now what we do is we sort of, our initial reaction to events that happen around us is to look at them negatively at first. And we we just kind of fall into this trap. So, um, So in sales, if I have, if I have a sales conversation with a prospect, and they hang up on me, I might immediately assume it's because I'm a terrible salesperson. It's because I wasn't well prepared. It's because I'll never be good at this job. I got to start thinking about what I want to do next because I'm going to get fired, right? We can quickly tumble down that path instead of just stepping back from that and saying, all right, well, I did a few things right on that call. And that person obviously was not in the mood to hear me. So they kind of hung up on me. But 
let's see if I can learn from what I just experienced and try a little different approach with the next prospect, right? But that negativity bias is in us. And so we always sort of assume this negative intent of other people. And we kind of assume that any weakness we have is permanent and is never going to be overcome. So um, one way to counter it is to try to train our brains to look for positive things on a daily basis. And those positive things don't have to be anything earth shattering. It could just be simply, uh, you know, little things that I'm grateful for over the last 24 hours that I, that I need to step back and, and, and think about. Right. So it could be that I'm grateful for the fact that I woke up today and, uh, prepared for this podcast and the lights are still on, uh, you know, the Wi-Fi is working well, the microphone's good. The, the folks that are cleaning my house right now, the power washer's out too loud so we can have this conversation. If I just stop and think about those three or four things, yeah. it puts me in a better mood. But I think your point is negativity bias can be a really good thing if we understand it and we recognize when it's controlling us or impacting yes. the, our viewpoint on the situation. Absolutely. Right? Because we as sellers, be we're bombarded with negativity. We get rejected all, all the, the time. time, maybe far more frequently than any other role. I think business. probably that's true, right? Yeah. Outside of being a, a, a you know a, a, a hitter in Major League Baseball, you're failing more often in sales than anything else. Right. And so to your point, if you allow that negativity bias to kind of creep into your interpretation of events all the time, you will eventually, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You will eventually begin acting in a way that supports your view that you're not good in sales or that sales is really hard or that prospects don't want what I'm selling. And yeah, you see it even, you know, just... You know, everyday life, like you're going to go, you're going to go golf with some buddies and there's a whole, you know, pond of water right in front of you. And you hear some guys yeah. saying, oh, every time I'm on this hole, I hit it in the water. Right. And I'm right. thinking, well, you're programming yourself to hit it back in the water. Yes. Again. Instead of saying to yourself, I see the water. That's that could be negative. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to blast this ball way right. over the pond. Right. right. But John, my favorite is when a guy pulls out a crappy golf ball to replace the really good golf ball they have <laughs> when they're hitting over the water because they don't want to lose the good one in the well, water. Well, now they're really programming themselves to well, hit it. Really, it's like physically, yeah. you're physically assuming this is what's going to happen. And, yeah. and that is a perfect example of it. So if you go into a sales conversation or a meeting or a conversation with a spouse or a partner and you're, you're going into it with that negative negativity bias at, you know, at the forefront, that conversation is not going to go well. That golf swing is not going to work well. What do they tell us about golf, right? You can't, you got to keep your eye on the ball, literally, as the club is striking the ball. You shouldn't even be looking at the, the, the water hazard, right? It shouldn't even be part of the equation. But we do, because we're human, we're looking for danger. That's why they call it, you know, a, 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 a sand trap, right? It's a trap, right? Or a water hazard, right? Look at even the terminology we use in golf. So the the act of thinking about the negative things can actually cause them to occur. Well, you know, going back again with salespeople getting rejected all the time, shouldn't we then focus more on the process of selling versus trying to get a result on a sales call or a phone call or trying to close a meeting Shouldn't we focus more on the process instead of the result? Yep. 
Yeah. It's so a, maybe starting to shift, you know, to the outcome of the sales a conversation. Perfect, a perfect. That's a I mean, I mean, to the process it. instead of just the, the outcome. Yeah. I, when I coach sellers, I tell them and managers who are, you know, who are coaching their own sellers, one of the main learning outcomes I want them to have is stop fixating on how do I close this deal? We are in sales. We know closing the deal is why we're here. I get it, right? It's just like golf. I know my goal is to get the ball in the hole. I got it. I know that, but I don't have to think about that every time I'm swinging the club, right? In sales, the same thing happens. If you're just fixated on how do I get this deal to close? How do I get this deal to close? That that sense of uh, dread about it not closing causes that negativity bias to kind of vibrate a little bit inside of you. And then you begin to get desperate. And that desperation comes across. And the prospect gets nervous because they can sense the desperation, right? They can tell when you're pushing. So the better mindset is, is to go into that conversation and control what you can control, which is the types of questions you ask, how you ask them, the tone in your voice. Um, and I always tell sellers, if you really struggle with this, step back and ask yourself, not how do I close this deal, but ask yourself, how do I help this person in front of me personally and professionally right now? How do I help them? If you, if you go in thinking, how do I help that person in this moment? You will ask much better questions. You'll do a better job of building rapport. You'll do a much better job of identifying what pain they have and, and what they've tried to, to, you know, to use in the past to solve that pain. And then if you're genuinely empathetic with that person, as you are with anybody else in your life, any personal friend or family member, they will trust you. And then you can move that conversation more naturally to a, to a positive conclusion. And I think salespeople get so, they get so worried that the deal won't close. Why? Because it's negativity bias. They're worried about the deal not closing, as opposed to just worrying about how do I have a conversation with another human, which we do all the time, all day long with people that we're not selling to. Right. Just focus on having a positive conversation, closing, closing, you know, the, the deal in this call. right? Right. Right. And managers can help in that regard too. Right. Because if the manager is hammering you on how to close the deal, when are you going to close this? When are you going to close this? Of course, if I'm working for someone like that, that's all I'm thinking of, as opposed to a manager saying, what does this person need that you're speaking with today? How are you helping this person today? They can reinforce that mindset, right? It's a, it's a shift. It's subtle, but man, it, the, the, the results it produces are much better, much better. Yeah. So, Puli, I want to s- switch gears kind of a little bit again. Sure. Yeah. I saw your two by two matrix yep. which was what you call a career satisfaction matrix yep um and it's really a matrix of skill versus happiness right or enjoyment yes. of your job right the skill for those listening with skill on the x axis and enjoyment or happiness on the y axis yep. and maybe some people that are not engineers don't know what the x and y axis are <laughs> <laughs> But just think of a box with only four squares in it. There you go. And um, and then you had failure and drudgery along the x-axis, failure and aspiration along the y-axis, with the top right-hand corner being. Mastery uh, flow. Yeah. What would yeah, you I call it? I, I've been calling flow. it mastery lately. Flow mastery. Okay. Yeah. Mastery. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk. 
a little bit about those different boxes and, and what the matrix really yeah. means to you. Yeah. So I came up with this partly because uh, of my own career path. As you mentioned in the beginning, John, right? We're both engineers. We decided early on we wanted to be doing something more with people rather than with products and, and engineering. So for me, it took a long time. I mean, it took decades for me to kind of put this all into perspective and and a lot of thinking about it. But Typically, when we think about careers and when we think about coaching young people into going off to college or pursuing a career after high school, we always come back to what do you do well? That's always the first question people say. What do you think you do well? Right. Which is a great question to ask. And it, and it really kind of focuses us on our strengths, which we've learned is, is one of the best ways to have a more fulfilling career. So do something that you do well. And to kind of avoid the things that you don't do well, right? Just minimize the amount of things that you do uh, that you don't do well throughout the course of your career. But the missing element for me always was the following. Do I enjoy doing this thing well? So when I went off and got my engineering degree at WPI, I did it because I was great at math and science in high school. Um, you know, I was, I was very analytical and I, I, you know, I excelled in those fields and everyone around me said, you should be an engineer because those are the things you have to do well to be an engineer. But I was actually better in English and in communications and creative arts, but mm. those were not things that were valued at the time in terms of career path. So I decided to become an engineer and soon into it, you know, soon into my career, I said, you know, I can do this pretty well. I, I can do the work. And I could do it pretty well. I just don't enjoy doing it well. It doesn't give me any internal sort of uh, juice. So once you put that on a on a two by two matrix, you've got how well do you do the work on one axis and how well do you enjoy doing the work well on the other axis? Now you've got a framework to kind of help you manage your career. So if you do it well, but you don't enjoy doing it well, it becomes drudgery. If, if you, you know, if you do something really well, but you're asked to do it over and over and over again, and you don't enjoy doing it well, you eventually burn out. It becomes a thing where it's like, I'm not being challenged. I, I used to enjoy doing this. I don't enjoy it that much anymore. And you can slip into that failure mode. It's burnout. That's a, that's the perfect, um, equation, if you will, for burnout. Do something. Well, you see well. that in, in, um, I'm sure a lot of the leaders on this on this might see that in some people. I've seen people that they they put 10 or 15 years into their career. Yeah. They've learned a whole bunch of skills. They get to a point where they just don't want to learn anymore because they think that, you know, I make enough money doing what I'm doing. I don't really have any real desire to learn anymore. Yeah. So they get really stagnant in their careers and everybody around them can sense that, you know, that person just kind of stuck where they are. Yes. They're not going to really go anywhere. And I think that's what you're calling drudgery. That's drudgery. And and anyone who's listening to this podcast, just ask yourself, you know, do you view what you do on a daily basis as something that you enjoy doing well so that you're constantly building more skills in that area? If you're doing something well and you're not interested in in learning more about it or working harder at it or learning new skills around it, you might be in the drudgery zone where eventually you, you you'll get bored with it. And yeah, the they, they, all, they burn out, they, they burn they out, they burn out. Yeah. And it leads to failure. And it's happened to me a few times in my career. I know I can point to, you know, points in time, the engineering, the shift from engineering into sales was one of those times. I, I know that I could do the work well, 
but it was just not interesting to me and I didn't enjoy doing it well and eventually decided, you know, I need to move on and do something else. Right. And so when you get to that point, um, then you have to ask yourself, what do I enjoy doing well? But perhaps I, I don't do it well yet. Right. So there might be something that you can do, some kind of work that you do that you enjoy doing well, but you're not at the top of it yet in terms of skill level. That's a very aspirational approach. Right. It's like I've started to do this. I do it on I maybe I do it on average basis. Right. Whatever it happens to be. But I enjoy doing it well. So I put in the extra time and the effort to get better at it. You know, I, I, I take on a new job in sales. For example, I move from BDR to AE. And maybe I'm just average AE in the beginning, but man, am I into this whole concept of discovery and negotiating and building rapport and having these deeper conversations with my prospect. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm taking external training. I'm, I'm talking about ways of, of expanding discovery with my prospects, with my manager and sharing best practices internally. I'm into it because I enjoy doing it well. And I, then eventually my skill set increases. And when you go ahead, John, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I want to, I want to stay on that point because yeah. um, now I want to blend in what you just said with negativity bias. So, yeah. you know, I think it might be a little dangerous to focus on only being happy Right. Without understanding negativity bias as we embark on a new career or a career yes. change. And what I mean by that is almost using your example. You know, for instance, I graduate college, I go into scales, which is a sales, which is a highly skilled profession. And it may take years to master certain skills. So don't this is where we're blending some of the stuff that we talked about before. Don't I have to focus on the process? Yeah. So that I don't get frustrated with negativity bias and then quit in the first few years and say, yeah. you know, the sales thing is just not for me. Right. So right. I think yeah. any anybody coming out of college going to BDR program, BDR to sales, sales to enterprise sales, enterprise sales to, you know, major account sales. You have to master certain new skills. Right. And if you have a negativity bias, it says, while I'm learning these things, I'm not happy. That could be that could be a little dangerous because yeah. it's going to take years. And that's why you have to yeah. focus on the process. Right. Yeah. Isn't it starting to all play together, Jim? It I, is. Yeah. yeah, no, it is. Absolutely. And I think I think I think that's an important thing to note, which is when we talk about happiness and well-being, one of the things that I would never subscribe to is that you're always happy or that everything is always positive. Right. You know, humans are emotional creatures, right? There's a swing of emotions every day, up and down, up and down. Um, so in sales, especially, you're going to have really difficult days. You're going to have days when you fail completely, <laughs> right? You're going to have quarters where you feel like you're worthless, right? And and the key there is to say, okay, the results are not what I wanted. What did I do differently? What can I do differently? What can I learn from the way things went, you know, sideways at various at various times throughout the course of the of the uh, of the time frame that I'm looking back on, and understand that there will be negative um, days and negative emotions all tied up with you. I mean, there's no way to avoid it. It's kind of like looking at it on a longitudinal basis to say, am I on the right track here? Right? Are, am I getting a little better at this skill every day? Am I moving yes. forward a little bit every day? Have I mastered something that was really hard for me six months ago? Right. So, you know, I talked about the pandemic and how people had 
additional time in the pandemic, I actually started playing the drums, you know, almost at the age of 60. I said, all right, I want to learn how to play the drums. To your point about mastering something that I feel like I wanted to do well, but did terribly in the beginning. When I look back over the last, you know, two years, basically, of, of taking lessons, I started off by barely being able to play like a, a, a groove at the right tempo on a practice pad. Now I'm playing, you know, I've got like over 100 songs I know how to play. A month into playing, I thought I was going to give up because I couldn't get my brain to wrap around having my two hands on my feet do different things at the same time. Now I can. And I look back on that and I think, look how far I've come. But it came day by day. And there were some good days and bad days. Same thing in sales. Day by day, moment by moment is how it all kind of uh, all plays out. Yeah. So using your two by two matrix and everything that you know, you're saying right now, if I have a growth mindset, if I think that I'm a student of the game, if I think that I should always be learning, I could go through micro cycles or even macro cycles of, let's say, failure, aspiration, mastery, failure, aspiration, mastery. Yes. Right. But as long as I know I'm, I'm in that circle and I'm going to get to mastery and no matter and then I'm going to go up a level and now I'm going to fail and I'm going to aspire. I'm going right. to try to master again. As long as I'm conscious of that and conscious of that process I, and not let negativity bias affect me, I think that I could have a really positive mindset. I think I think that loop is what people need to understand, which is I fail at something. I try differently. I learned something. Maybe, maybe now I'm a little bit more aspirational at it, right? And eventually, you can you can stay in that aspirational uh, moment longer. So, and then from there, you can move into that mastery. In other words, when when students ask me when they graduate from Bentley and they ask me about uh, career advice, one of the things I tell them is, do not pursue a career thinking it's going to be a linear set of steps from graduation to retirement. Right. I tell them, view every job that you take as an experiment. Go into it with a hypothesis. I think I'm going to like this job for the following reasons. I'm going to get to do the following types of things. And I'm going to have the kind this kind of impact on my on my prospects and my clients. Right. But every six months or so, ask yourself, am I actually achieving that hypothesis? Are those things that I thought I was going to get out of this job actually coming to be? And if not, You've got to either, you know, shift your behavior in the job or you've got to shift into a different role and just use that as a stepping stone to whatever the next challenge is. And eventually over time, over time, and it could be five years, could be 10 years, eventually you will find something that you really perform well at, right? Into that aspirational and that mastery mode. And the more you do that and surround yourself in an environment where people appreciate that, the more likely it is that you will get passionate about the work. And then once you're passionate about the work, then maybe you will find your purpose in life, right? But that doesn't happen day one, the moment after graduation, when every graduation speaker tells you, you know, find your purpose and you'll always be happy. Right. It's nonsense because exactly. it takes decades sometimes to get there. So yes, that's that that was my main point through a lot of this. But if we if we think about mastery again, right? And here's a world I've lived in where, you know, I've been in many startups. Yep. And what happens is you see people that maybe in the first couple of years of the startup, they are mastering, especially in sales, mastering how to sell the product. 
Yeah. They know the messaging, they know the product, they know the customers, they know all that stuff. Then what happens is you fast forward and it's a couple of years later and that same person that had mastered everything almost falls into what I might call, you would call drudgery. Yes. And the reason is, is because everything around them, and maybe this goes back to your happiness thing, the, the C, the circumstances, everything's changed. The products change, the customers yes. change, the competitors change, the messaging needs to change, and these people don't change. So isn't there, my question is, isn't there a little bit of a danger of believing that you've ever mastered anything? Because when you see the best people that are in sports, the separation between the, the people people that are number one and the person that's number 10 is yeah. just, you know, really small right. micro increments, right? Yeah. So isn't yeah. there a danger there? The dan- I think the danger is in feeling like if I master knowledge or information, I've arrived at a final state, right? Because the world, as we know, is dynamic, right? Products come and go, markets change, companies come and go you know, managers come and go. So if, if we think that mastering a set of knowledge is the ultimate, um, you know, destination, I think we can be mistaken. I think it's mastering a set of skills, right? Things that we do, the types of things that we do are the things that we want to master. So to your point, someone who does a really great job of selling one particular kind of product because they have immersed themselves in that product, they know it inside and out, they know the competitive landscape really well in terms of the product set, but they haven't really learned how to have great uh, discovery conversations, and they haven't learned how to be audible ready and think on their feet, and they haven't learned how to love learning, eventually they will they will stagnate and they could be in that drudgery zone and then eventually in that failure zone. But if someone really loves the act of having human-to-human conversations and the act of constantly learning about new ways of doing things and open to those possibilities, now we've got an opportunity to move into aspirational and then eventually mastery mode. For me, mastery never means you stop learning. It just means that you're in a place where what you do you do it well, you enjoy doing it well, and you're constantly improving upon it, right? That's one of the three elements of internal motivation is mastery, which is continually going into that flow state because you're so good at it, but you're always working on it. Those great athletes you talked about, they're always practicing. Right. They're always finding new coaches. They're always finding new ways of, of improving their uh, performance. And you see the the great superstar athletes who decide to stop doing that because they've reached a certain point. You could see them stagnate, right? Sometimes it's age, sometimes it's disinterest, right? And then they kind of fade away. So yeah. I want to emphasize one of your points, though, when you talked about knowledge and skill. In my experience, if you hire somebody that's really, really smart, very super intelligent, like they can gain knowledge very quickly. Right. But to your point, Gaining the skills, that takes a lot of repetitions, thousands of repetitions or hundreds of repetitions to really start to master a skill. And that's maybe what we should emphasize for people is you can gain knowledge really quickly about what to do. Yeah. But the how to do it and actually doing it is really difficult. And that takes time. For me, a big part of it is are we... Are we, as managers, for example, are we impacting someone's knowledge of the situation or are we impacting their behavior 
in the situation. Okay. I think the behavior piece is more important, right? As you said, I can learn whatever I need to learn, right? We, we live in the information age, right? I mean, if I want to learn anything, I just click a button and I can search it and I can find a way to learn it, the, the, you know, the information itself. But the behavior, the skill set, the way we, you know, what we control when we're in a sales conversation, what we control when we're interacting with another human, that is the stuff that we can continually sort of improve on and make huge kind of leaps forward as people. And again, if we're coaching or mentoring people, that's what we need to focus on, which is, I understand that you got all this product information. Tell me how you're going to have this conversation to be more empathetic, more genuinely interested in the other person, more uh, in the moment uh, about it without showing your desperation about trying to close the deal. Yeah. I think it would be interesting exercise for a lot of the leaders that are listening to this to sit down and think about where their people are, you know, in this two by two matrix, because yeah. that's how they might be able to really support them and then help them get to the next level. Right. Hey, I want to ask you, um, maybe this is something that's a little different, but it, it, it kind of fits in here. I've seen people in my life that have focused on, let's say, a destination like a Hmm. Uh, or an end result, like a new car, a new house, a yep. new job, and believe, hey, you know, when I get to this new car, right. I get this right. new house, I get this new job, yeah. that's when I'm going to be happy. And then they yeah. get all this stuff, and right. they still seem really unhappy. Yeah. What, what is that, Pooley? That is, uh, there's a term in psychology called the hedonic treadmill, which is... Hedonic treadmill? Hedonic okay. treadmill, like hedonism. Hedonism is like... Mm -hmm. you know, um, just doing things for, for enjoying for yourself, but, but it's not, it's not in a healthy way. So um, think of it this way. If, if I'm on social media and I post something about you and I having this conversation on a podcast, and then I start looking to see, are people sharing it? Are they liking it? Are they commenting on it? If I base whether or not I'm going to be happy on how many people like what you and I have talked about, how many people have shared it, how many people have commented on it, Every time I see one of those little likes, a little click there, I get a little dopamine hit. I'm like, wow, there's another mm -hmm. one. There's another one. There's another one. I want more. I want more. I want more. But after a couple of days, you know, those posts, people, people move on. Right. Right. And I'm like, why aren't people liking this stuff? Why aren't they liking it? Oh, man, I'm looking for the external validation. When you're chasing after money and you're constantly thinking about how to make more and more and more money. That could be a recipe to unhappiness because it's not about the achieving of the goal. It's the, it's the sort of upping of the goal every single time and making it so that you base your internal worth on those external results. We, we said it right at the beginning of the podcast. You and I, if we're in a sales conversation, we can control the conversation, but we cannot control the result. You know, each, all of us have had great sales conversations where we knew this person that we're talking to should do business with us. And there's no reason they shouldn't. The value is there. There's there's no objection that stands. They've even told us they want to, you know, do business with us. And somehow the deal doesn't go through. We don't control that result. We just control the conversation. So the hedonic treadmill is the constant pursuit of ever more money, the constant pursuit of more wealth, the constant pursuit of more fame can make us miserable. I am never, I've never said that money can't make you happy. It absolutely can make you happy in the short term. But the constant pursuit of it, unless you find some other reason why you're doing what you're doing, can come back to bite you a little bit. So you've got to see the impact of the work that you do. I think that's a more important gauge 
of staying motivated in a sales role is to see the impact you're having on other people. If you base your, your motivation on that, I think you'll be better served. Puli, I want to go back to your happiness formula, you know, S plus C plus V. Yep. And on S, which was your set point, you said that's in your DNA. And yep. I'm going to go hire someone and I'm looking at their character traits. Mm. Are there certain and some of their behaviors during the interview, because I'm thinking about hiring them. Are there certain characteristics like listening, curiosity, um, those types of character traits that you've seen or seen studies on that say these types of people will are typically can be happier in their jobs because they're maybe more willing to listen, more willing, they're more curious about the world around them. So they're maybe more willing to learn because they're also intelligent. I mean, can you expand on that at all? Yeah. So I, I don't know if like I, I don't know if I've seen studies about it, but I do know one thing that when 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 people are engaging with each other for the first time, whether it's a job interview or a social situation, one of the things that I've always thought about is is the person talking at you and to you and pitching to you, or are they just having a conversation with you? And do you feel after the conversation that that person is interesting? Right. And so, so for me, one of the things I have my students do, one of, one of the exercises I do is I pair them up and I say, one of you is going to tell a story. The other one is going to listen and ask questions about the other person. I don't tell them ahead of time. They don't Neither party knows what the other party is doing. I just, I let the listener go in knowing that they're not supposed to inject anything about themselves. Even if the story is about a vacation that the other student has been on, and maybe they've, the listener has also been there, but they're not allowed to talk about that. Just ask questions, get deeper into the, into the other person's psyche. What, what they report afterwards is, oh my gosh, I feel like I've got a, a, a new friend, a best friend, someone who really cared about me. For me, uh, it, it comes back to in order to be interesting, you have to be interested. So when I'm interviewing someone for a new role or just meeting someone for the first time, in my head, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a measurement going on is how much time are they spent asking me about me and how much time are they telling me about them? If they're spending more of their time asking me about me, that's a great sign of an empathetic, genuinely interested person who would be great in sales, by the way. Right. Especially today in these in these days, because the days of just pitching and making things happen are gone, long gone. Right. right. So. So I know it's not a direct answer, but I always listen. Right. Are they asking me? <laughs> you so, didn't actually answer the question. That's I know, okay. but I kind of think about the like the cocktail. Party I gave you something around. to go research, though. Yeah, well, I will. Right. Like you're, like you're you're at a cocktail party, right? And you're talking to someone and the whole time they're looking elsewhere, right? They yeah. they want to go find someone else to talk to. Yeah. That's a bad sign, right? right. That's a bad yeah. sign. Puli, uh, one other thing. So you focus a lot of your discussions on the intersection, you know, of sales, well-being, and personal productivity, which seems like a fantastic place to be. <laughs> so how can the like the sellers that are listening, how can they arrive at that destination? Talk to us a little bit about that. So I think part of it is um, when it comes to the when it comes to the personal well-being and the happiness, uh, everyone, not just sellers, but everyone on a daily basis, at the very least, take out a piece of paper, take out your notes app on your phone and just write down two to three things that you're grateful for that day. 
that the last 24 hours. If you really want to challenge yourself, try not to repeat an item for 30 days. In other words, you know, if I joked earlier, like the Wi-Fi is working. If that's one of your things that you're grateful for today, don't talk about that tomorrow. What you're trying to do in that case is make sure that you are noting the positive things throughout the course of the day so that you know that every day at five o'clock before you shut down for the day or six o'clock, whatever time you, you know, kind of stop working, that you're going, you're holding yourself accountable just to write down two or three things that you're grateful for. Your brain eventually begins to look for those positive things throughout the course of the day because your brain is, 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 is wanting to uh, successfully accomplish that task. So it's going to look it, But it also get that dopamine hit again. And then you get the dopamine hit, right? So, right? so that's one thing. The second thing in terms of, um, you know, sort of productivity and, and your, you know, your day-to-day kind of activity, I'm a big believer in creating sort of a model in your head for the ideal week and the ideal day. Now, ideal doesn't mean it's going to happen all the time, every week, every day, but we all have, you know, we all have certain levels of energy that rise and fall throughout the course of the day. And if you know that in the mornings when you've got your best energy to be in front of a, a prospect or to be on the phone, then structure your day. So that's when you're making your calls and that's when you're out reaching out to people. And in the afternoons, if you think that's the quieter time for you in terms of energy level, that's maybe when you do your, your pre-call research or vice versa. And of course, external appointments are going to drive your ultimate schedule. But if you have a kind of a sense of when your rhythm, uh, you know, your natural rhythm throughout the course of the day, you can kind of create a bit more of an ideal week that way. Um, and one thing that I've, that I, when I did, when I wrote the book, um, one of the things that I researched was sleep. And I'm starting to realize that in the last couple of decades, people have not slept enough, man, that, you know, right. you got to get seven to eight hours of sleep uh, a night. It is such a magical, ma- it's a magic potion that a lot of people just don't uh, understand how powerful it is. So for me, begin with allocating that seven or eight hours. It can't be six. Don't tell me that you don't need a lot of sleep. Everyone needs that much. And then building kind of a life around that. I think those few things really lead people to be successful. One one final thing, Puli. What about setting goals? If I set my goals way too high, does that start to have an, an effect on my, on my positive attitude or maybe negative bias starts to... Yeah, I don't I mean, think because I set them so high that I I can't get to certain points yeah. you know, within a reasonable amount of time. And somebody else needs to help me and say, hey, buddy, that's is yeah, these are great goals. But you know what? You know, you no one has ever gotten there in the first right. like four years. So let's start to set goals for, you know, the week, the month, the quarter, the smaller increments so that I can maintain more of a positive attitude and be happy. I, I think setting a big goal is great. I think. I think over the years, what I've realized is the goal is nice. It could be a big goal, right? It could be a huge goal, whatever you want it to be, but way more important than the goal. What are the daily actions I think will take me to that goal? That's what we need to focus more on. Okay, focusing on the process again. On the process, right? If I say I want to lose 50 pounds, right? Fine. What does that mean, Pooley? What are you going to do to lose 50 pounds? You know, are you going to, you know, restrict calories? Are you going to eat a certain kind of food? Are you going to work out? You know, create a template that says these are the six things I'm doing on a daily basis to to lose weight. And if they're the right things, you will lose weight. But you have to focus on the things you're doing, not the end goal. Just like golf, man. If I'm looking at the hole, I'm never going to hit the ball on the ground. 
right? So I've got to focus on those daily activities that I know will take me to that goal. And whether or not I reach it is almost irrelevant because as long as I've done the things I know will produce a certain result, my results should increase. Maybe I hit the goal, maybe I exceed it, but at least I know that I'm doing the things I enjoy doing well on a daily basis and I'm tracking it. Maybe I have someone externally helping hold me accountable for doing those things on a daily basis. I think that's more important than the goal is the, the daily actions, the things you can control. That's It really comes out to that. What can you control? Um, Maybe one possible. more, because I'm, I'm, I'm curious myself. Sure. Really. Yeah. So what impact does our happiness or our emotions, you know, whether we're happy or unhappy, have on our friends, our family, our coworkers? What have you seen there? So there's been actual research that shows if I approach the day uh, it's called the ripple effect. If I approach the day in a slightly happier mode, uh, or if I'm in a happy mood, right, when I come across someone, the person I interact with, at the end of the day, when they measure their happiness, and researchers have done this, so they've they've actually done this, at the end of the day, what they find is that that other person's happiness is 16% higher than it normally would be, because they interacted with me who was happy in the morning. Now, person A 16% happier interacts with another person, person B, their happiness will be 10% higher at the end of the day because they were happier because I was happier. And then person B interacts with person C, they will be 6% happier than they normally would be. It's a ripple effect that can, you know, kind of go across and think about it. If I meet, if I run into 10 people today, and I'm just in a better mood. And I, you know, it's like an open Wi-Fi network, right? They they attach to my positivity. And they So those 10 people meet 10 people of their own. That's 100 people. If those 100 people meet 10 people. That's 1,000 people that are 6% happier just because I I approach someone in the morning with a smile. Well, the world needs that, Pooley. Well, uh, doesn't it really? I mean, this is, this is the solution <laughs> to so many problems, John. I yeah, think. yeah. Well, Pooley, thanks so much for spending your precious time with us. It, oh, it was really enjoyable. Pleasure. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. It was a great conversation. Yeah. I, I yeah. love I love talking about this stuff, as you can tell, and uh, and uh, it was it was really great. It's fun. Yeah. So people have to look out for your book and also some of your TED talks. Yep. They and again, the name talks. of the book is "How to Be a Well Being: Unofficial Rules to Live Every Day." Yep. And if they want to see my Apolis. TED talks. They can go to uh, Pooley.com if they want to see the TED Talks. They're all there. Um, and uh, Pooley.com, P-O-U-L-I.com. That's it. Yeah. Pretty simple, right? Thank you, Pooley. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.